Hello and welcome to the First Baptist Church of LaGrange. What an honor it is to have you listening to our church broadcast today. We hope that as you listen along, following in your Bible, that you experience the grace and presence of Christ just as strongly as we do every Sunday in our worship service. May God truly bless you as you listen. So the interviewer asked him, he said, sir, what are you the most proud of? Well, the 100-year-old man said, well, I guess it would be that I do not have an enemy in the entire world. What a beautiful thought. I mean, how inspirational that is, said the reporter. Yep, yep. The old man said, well, it's really just because I've outlived all of them. We all have enemies, right? I'd come to live long enough to find out that it doesn't matter how, long, how good I am, how loving I am, how kind I am, there's going to be people who want to challenge you, people who want to take you down, defeat you, but I guess I'm not alone, I'm not saying that I am anywhere near Christ, but Christ had his enemies, right? But like the old man, I think Jesus is going to outlive all of his enemies. What do you think? (laughs) You see, Jesus is the king, and he is going to establish his kingdom, and all of his enemies will be put under his feet. You wonder where we get that from. We're still in the book of Daniel chapter 7, as we will be probably until the second coming. (laughs) There's just, yeah, amen. We saw last week that the king has communicated about his kingdom, right? He's given us this communication, and we have to believe it because of what's coming now. This morning, we're going to see that when the king communicated about his kingdom, all of a sudden, these challengers start rising up. Those who would seek to be the king and establish their kingdom are always on the scene. We see them even now in current events. So I want us to read just a few more verses, and again, you're going to see that we're just going to get doses of Daniel chapter 7 along the way until finally we're all the way through and you've got the cumulative effect. It's kind of like taking cough medicine or something that you don't like. It too much at once makes you spit it out. So we're going to slowly digest this. So I'm going to be in Daniel chapter 7 if you want to turn your Bibles there. If you don't have a copy of God's Word and you don't own a copy, man, it would be our privilege to give you one. Please see Pastor Justin after the service, and we'll give you a a Bible uh, that just be our gift to you. This morning, I'm going to be reading from Daniel chapter 7. I'm going to read the first eight verses, even though we'll include some other verses in our, our preaching this morning. But can we do this? Can we just rise to our feet as we read from God's holy, inspired, inerrant, an infallible word. The Bible says these words. It says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. And he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. Then he said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, four, the four winds of heaven were stirring the great sea. And four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind was also given to it. 
And behold, another beast, the second one, resembling a bear, and it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. And then we find the Lagrange leopards in the text. And after this, I kept looking, and behold, another one like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The, uh, the beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. And after this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. And while I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them. And three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. Lord, would you just please take your word? And do something to make us look like Christ. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Here's the first thing I want to teach you this morning. Again, not rocket science here. The first thing is God raises up the ones whom he allows to rule kingdoms. I know we're in an election year, and I just want you to remember that. God raises up the ones whom he allows to rule kingdoms. See, Daniel received this vision of four beasts in a dream, and he wrote it down for us. And this is probably when Daniel was in his mid-60s, so perhaps 20 years prior to his experience that we found in the lion's den in chapter 6. Daniel chapter 7 fits chronologically between Daniel chapter 4 and Daniel chapter 5. So, so he's going back now to talk about some stuff that's happened before, and you have to understand that. The first thing Daniel saw in the vision was a great sea being churned up by four winds of heaven. The sea and prophecy usually stands for the nations, and the winds represent the various forces which move upon the nations, generally bringing strife and trouble. That the four winds, north, south, east, and west, all come at the same time, quite contrary to nature, indicates that this is God himself that is doing the stirring. Again, the great sea should be understood symbolically as the raging chaos, confusion, and conflict among the nations of the world. Isaiah 17, 12 says, Ah, the roar of many peoples, they roar like the roaring of the seas. The raging of the nations, they rage like the raging of mighty water. We see that over and over and over in Scripture. But in verse 3, we come to the beast. And God gives Daniel a vision of four great beasts that come out of the sea. Now, in the second chapter of Daniel... He gave, God gave a vision to Nebuchadnezzar, and God gave a vision of world power to him, and it was a form of an image with a head of gold going all the way down to the toes, which were made in part of iron and clay. And God gave to Nebuchadnezzar in that image the four major world powers under the symbol of an image. Daniel here in chapter 7 gets the same vision of the same world powers, but it's a vision of these not as a statue with different metals, but of four different beasts coming up out of the sea. Let's quickly kind of look at those, because chapter 2 will help us with our understanding of now chapter 7, and if we put these two side by side, we'll have a clearer picture of what's going on. Interestingly enough, 
Animals usually always serve as a symbol for a nation. For example, Britain utilizes the lion. Russia utilizes the bear. America utilizes the eagle. So this language shouldn't be too far-fetched for us. But here's the first thing we see in this. God raises up those in commanding kingdoms. God raised up those in commanding kingdoms, and that would have been Babylon. The Bible says that the first beast was like a lion but had eagle's wings. Now, this is Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. It was a ferocious lion and swift with eagle's wings. However, its wings were torn off. Most likely, this is now the reference back to Nebuchadnezzar's humbling when he went insane and walked around in in Daniel chapter 4. However, the lion was lifted up from the ground, set on its feet like a man, and given a human mind. The phrase, it was lifted up and the mind was given it to him, is what we call a divine passive. In other words, that it's the activity of God acting upon something. And so we knew that then God acted upon Nebuchadnezzar and made those things happen to him. Nebuchadnezzar was restored from being a beastly existence turned into now a believer. It's worth noting that both Jeremiah and Ezekiel compare Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon to a lion and an eagle. But we see that this this lion has been plucked, these feathers have been plucked, and he's made to stand on two feet and given a human mind. This is going all the way back to what Nebuchadnezzar experienced as the king of Babylon. But then we see that lion imagery. The lion imagery was frequently used in in Babylon. Archaeologists tell us that the gates that guarded the city of Babylon had winged lions inscribed on them. The lion was a national symbol to people in the kingdom of Babylon, and Daniel said it was a lion that had eagle's wings. Now, you and I know that the lion is the king of beasts, where the eagle, eagle is king of the birds. One has the command of the jungle. The other has the command of the air. Eagle's wings on a lion suggest power and command, equipped with speed and the capacity for effective action. And that fits well with Nebuchadnezzar because he struck against his enemies with lightning quickness, and within a few short years, he was able to build Babylon into the first truly commanding world empire. You have to know that God raises up those in commanding kingdoms, but then God also raises up those in crushing kingdoms. This would have been the Medes and the Persians. He sees a second beast, and it was a bear. But the bear was raised up on one side, interesting, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told to get up and to gorge itself on flesh. This is reference to the Medo-Persian kingdom. Raised up on one side, talks about the dominance that the Persians had over the Medes. The three ribs in its mouth tells us that this was not a fasting bear. (laughs) Dogmatism is is unwarranted in identifying whom the three ribs were, but, but we have some idea. One commentator says that it's plausible that Cyrus, the Medo Persian king, and his son Cambyses conquered the Lydian kingdom of Asia Minor, which fell to Cyrus in 546. The Chaldean Empire, which overthrew, which he overthrew in 539, and then the kingdom of Egypt, which fell to Cambyses in 525. Another commentator, whom I prefer, sees it slightly differently, seeing that these three ribs represent Babylon in 539, Lydia in 546, and Egypt in 525. The idea that these three ribs represent the insatiable nature of the beast is certainly the safer interpretation. 
The Medo-Persian Empire was like a bear in, its, in that it simply just crushed its enemies. Contrary to a lion that devours its foes, the bear is clumsy. It's a stalking beast that just crushes its foes. And from secular history, we know this about the empire of the Medes and the Persians. They were known for their massive armies. They were the first nation in history of the world that gathered together great armies in the field of battle. Some say they had as many as two and a half million soldiers when they would go to battle. The Medes and the Persians were raised up to crush the Babylonians. But then God also raises up conquering kingdoms. Conquering kingdoms, and this is reference to Greece. The third beast in verse 6 looks like a leopard with four wings of a bird and four heads. It's a powerful conquering beast because it was given the authority to rule, the scripture says. And this is clearly Greece, and along with its leader, Alexander the Great. With speed and agility that was unprecedented, he conquered the world of his day all the way to India, only to die suddenly at the age of 32. You see, in Scripture, heads may represent rulers or government, and that is the case with the leopard's four heads. Daniel predicted that this one empire would eventually evolve into four empires, and that's exactly what occurred. Alexander died in 323 BC, and after much internal struggle, his generals carved the kingdom into four parts. And Antipater and the latter, Cassander, gained control of Greece and Macedonia. Asychemus ruled Thrace and a large part of Asia Minor. Seleucus and Icator governed Syria and Babylon and much of the Italy, Middle East. And Ptolemy the I of Soda controlled Egypt and Palestine. This quadripartite character is definitely ascribed to the Greek empire in the next chapter, chapter 8. So it's reasonable to interpret the leopard's four heads in light of what's happening after, after Alexander has died. It's a fascinating thing, though, to study the kingdom of Greece. The text says that this leopard had on its back four wings of a fowl. The thing which was so characteristic about the armies of the Greeks was the swiftness with which they moved. There was the lion that pounced on its enemies. There was a, a bear that stalked its enemies and then just crushed them. But here's a winged leopard. This is a picture of swiftness and lightning attack. You see, the Greeks developed a very devastating aspect of military war. They would put on their chariot wheels razor-sharp swords. So the king of Persia came out to witness the battle between the Greeks and the Persians, and he had an army, like we've said, of over a million people. And the Greeks only had an army of 60,000. But that army was no match for the Greeks because their chariots had these razor-sharp swords all over them. And the king of Persia sat and watched his army of a million people chewed to pieces by the lightning-fast attack of the Greeks. Again, the great general of the Greeks was Alexander the Great. And we don't know if it's absolutely true, but tradition tells us that when Alexander the Great had conquered the, the known empire of the world at that time, he sat down and wept because there was no more worlds for him to conquer. You see, God raises up conquering kingdoms, and then we see God raises up the combined kingdoms. And this is reference to Rome. This is the fourth kingdom, the historical fulfillment of this prophecy which God gave to Daniel, was none other than the Roman Empire. God revealed to Daniel the successive world empires right down to the Roman Empire. You see, the Roman Empire was characterized by iron, and we're told that it had great teeth of iron, 
and it was able to break things into pieces. The Roman Empire dominated the world of its time and was very, very strong. You see, even when Jesus came into the world, the land of Israel where our Lord was born was dominated at a time by the Roman Empire. But Daniel sees something that goes a little beyond what we've seen even in the history of the Roman Empire. As you look at the end of verse 7, you see something. And he says that this fourth beast, that is the Roman Empire, had ten horns. So what is the meaning of these ten horns? Well, look in verse 17, because in verse 17 of the text, it says, these great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. And then in verse 19, he says, then I desire to know the truth of the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceeding dreadful, with its excuse me, teeth of iron and its claws of bronze, which devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And then it says, and the meaning of the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn which came up and before the eyes fell before them, namely the horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boast and which was larger in appearance than its associates. He described those horns. Those ten horns now represent ten kings that are made up within the Roman Empire. This is now a combined kingdom. Old Testament prophecy, you need to understand. Sorry to break this to you. You can disagree with me and we can still be friends. But in the Old Testament prophecy, there is no prediction made concerning the church. The Apostle Paul said that the church was a mystery of God that was revealed only in the days of the apostles. So when you go to the Old Testament, you will find sometimes there seems to be a gap in the history of it and to what happens later. Here's a prediction that the Roman Empire is suddenly going to be revived in the end time, and it's going to be gathered around these ten ten horns and ten kings. Bible teachers for many years have looked at the events taking place in Europe and the federated states of Europe in the early days, and then when they saw the European Union being formed made up of ten different countries, they started paying attention to what the Bible would say. But verse 11 tells us, though, something interesting. It tells us that an 11th horn, a little horn, emerges from the 10. It begins small, but it grows to have both great intelligence, the eyes of a man, and a big mouth. Revelation 13 is heard in the background, and we'll expand our study of this beast shortly. But one commentator, James Boyce, seems to be right in tracking it when he says, this seems to be the first biblical reference to an individual later described in the Bible as the Antichrist. He also appears in 2 Thessalonians 2.2 as the man of lawlessness doomed for destruction. And again, he's seen in Revelation. But for now, I just need you to understand that Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7, and Daniel chapter 8 overlap and they parallel one another. And so a visual chart may help you see how this all comes together. So I want you to see this chart. As you can see, the image in chapter 2 is a head of fine gold, and you can read down there. That's the image of chapter 2. When you get to chapter 7, you see exactly the same thing described differently and what it means. And then in chapter 8, we're going to see it come up again. And we see over here the kingdoms that are represented over here. Some people like to see it all out on a chart. Some people just like to see it displayed, and they like to put that right there in their Bible, and they can say, oh, now I know what he's meaning here. Trust me, this will be important later. (laughs) This Did I say that? This is going to be, when? It's going to be important later. So if you need this chart, 
you just let Elizabeth know back there, and she'll be kind enough to have somebody send it to you. But God raises up the one he allows to, to rule kingdoms. So watch this, okay? The king is sovereign, and his kingdom is going to be established. And he has reigned and ruled over history so that his king and his kingdom will rule. The Lord God is in control of history. After all, it is his story. The Lord God is in absolute control. So watch, it doesn't matter what's happening in this world. Nothing is going to happen and nobody's going to rise up that God himself hasn't already allowed to be there. You just have to take, take heart in it. So watch this. If we argue from the greater to the lesser, here's what that means for your life. If the Lord God is in control of history, wouldn't it make sense that he's in control of your everyday life? I mean, if, if God can control kingdoms that are raising up, and he puts, the Bible says that he turns the king's heart like he, he would, his, he could do that with his own hand. Can't he certainly control the events that are happening in your life? I mean, is he not in control? See, we can trust this. So no matter what happens in 2024, no matter what happens and who gets to rule here and what happens over in China and Russia and some people get to get, who, who cares? God is in control, and this thing's going to shake down exactly like he said it. Well, you don't have to worry, friends. Our God is in control because, listen, he, he, he does that. God is the one who sets up and allows these. But, but secondly, here's the thing that I want you to know, that God ruins the one who's against the rule of his kingdom. God, God raises up those whom he allows to rule kingdoms, but if you're against him and his kingdom, he's going to ruin you. See, I want to read to you a few statements, four statements that were made by a pretty prominent leader at one time in history. This, this very famous leader said this. He said, listen carefully, this, this leader said these words. As a Christian, as a Christian, I have no duty to allow myself to be cheated but I have the duty to be a fighter for truth and justice. Another powerful statement, he, he said this. He said, I believe that today my conduct is in accordance with the will of the Almighty God. A third statement he made was, mankind has grown strong in eternal struggles and will only perish through eternal peace. And finally, he wrote this. You can read it. He said, for the first time in our streets, uh, first time our streets will be safer, our police will be more efficient, and the world will follow our lead. You know that, that those statements were made in 1930 by Adolf Hitler? He, he sounded so peaceful, and he had so many people believing he was a wonderful guy. One man wrote in his diary after, after just being with Hitler, he said this, all sorts of people who have met Hitler are convinced that he is a factor for peace. He doesn't seek war, he seeks friendship. A previous prime minister of England named Lord George met Adolf Hitler, and after just one hour, he said this, Hitler is the greatest living German ever. And then one year later, he said, I only wish we had a man of his supreme quality at the head of the affairs of our country today. Even the Anglican church was all at Adolf Hitler. The Anglican church wrote, he is moral and ethical and makes a clear stand for God. There was only one man in England who was not deceived. And his name was Winston Churchill. 
And Winston Churchill said, I'm not convinced. There's something up with this guy. It's bad news blues. See, Daniel chapter 7 describes a leader who's coming to the world who will make Adolf Hitler look docile. And what happened in Nazi Germany looked like child's play. It's a ruler who's going to come and just dissuade and convince everybody that he is doing the right thing. It's a ruler who will persuade and all the people of this world, and he's known as the Antichrist. People in the world certainly don't take the Antichrist seriously. I mean, most people say that's just a movie. I mean, they put the Antichrist in the category of fiction like the Easter Bunny or something. And I'm sorry if I just ruined that for you. Daniel describes him, and he does so at length. So let's just read very quickly verses 8 through 28, just so that you get a context for what I'm talking about. Very quickly, watch. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, caught up among them. Three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it, and behold, this horn possessed eyes like that of a man, and mouth, and a mouth uttering great boasts. Verse 9 makes me get up in the morning, just so y'all know. Then you said, but I kept looking until thrones were set up and the ancient of days took his seat. <laughs> his vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool and his throne was ablaze with flames, flames and its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat and the books were opened. And then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which that horn kept speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but the extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the people's nations and every man of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. But as for me, Daniel... My spirit was distressed within me, and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. I approached one of them as they were standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all this. So he, he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. He said, these great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. Then I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from the others, exceeding dreadful, with its teeth of iron, its claws of bronze, in which it devoured, crushed, and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and the meaning of the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn which came up, and before which three of them fell, namely, that horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boasts, and which was larger in appearance than its associates, I kept looking, and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them, until the Ancient of Days came. And judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one. And the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. Thus he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth of the kingdom, which will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth and tread down and crush it. As for the 10 horns out of this kingdom, 10 kings will arise and another will arise after them. And he will be different from the previous ones and subdue these three kings. He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the highest one, and he will intend to make alterations in days and in law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court will sit for judgment, and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. 
Then the sovereignty, the dominion, the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole earth will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be what? An everlasting kingdom. And all the dominions will serve and do what? Obey him. And at this point, the revelation ended. And as for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming me. And my face grew pale, and I kept the matter to myself. You're saying, man, what in the world? Well, hang on. That's why we're doing five sermons. I mean, you know, I'm just trying to help you, church. Just to refresh your memory, Daniel chapter 7 is a prophetic panorama of what happens from the time of Daniel through history until the time Jesus comes, and it's all in a very compressed form. Chapter 7 is the panoramic view. This is important. To understand, it's panoramic, but 8 through 12 are going to show us the slide by slide. So Daniel sees these four beasts that come out of the earth, kings and kingdoms, which God has raised up as he points history toward his king and his kingdom. The main theme of chapter 7 is that history, human history culminates when God the Father gives to God the Son an everlasting kingdom. So we're going to take our time and consider the coming of Christ, which is mentioned in this chapter, And we're going to talk about the coming in week five, but we're going to talk about the crowning of this king next week. But this morning, I want you to see this ultimate challenge to the king and what happens when God ruins this one who doesn't want to submit to this rule. Again, he's known as the Antichrist. And and for those of you who are out there just wondering, the anti and Antichrist doesn't mean one who is against necessarily. It means another Christ. So... He's pretending to be Christ. You just have to understand that. That's why he can fool so many. Now, as you can expect throughout history, there have been many guesses to who the Antichrist is. Early Christians believe it was Caesar Nero because of all that he did to them. Others believe it was the Emperor Caligula because in 37 he put an image of himself in the Jerusalem temple. Others guess it's been Charlemagne, Napoleon, Hitler, Mussolini, Joseph Stalin. Some people have even claimed it was Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Some people said it's Henry Kissinger. Some said it's Soon Moon Young. Uh, some people said it's Ronald Reagan, Bill Clinton, Bill Gates, Barack Obama. Some people even say it's Donald Trump. Everybody, it seems, has been called the Antichrist if we don't like what they're doing. But I think it's safe to say nobody's got it right so far. I want us to see, though, the rise, reign, and the ruin of this Antichrist because he is the one who is against the rule of the kingdom. So let's begin by understanding who he is and then what happens. First of all, the Antichrist will powerfully dominate. He will powerfully dominate. What's interesting is that the Antichrist has different names. Now, in chapter 7, the Antichrist is called a little horn. In chapter 8, he's called the king of fierce countenance. In chapter 9, he's called the prince that shall come. In chapter 11, he's called a willful king. Did you know that there are 25 titles of the Antichrist in the scripture? Revelation 13 calls him the beast. Jesus Christ calls him the abomination that causes desolation. Paul, the the apostle in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, calls him the lawless one, the man of sin, the son of perdition. But Daniel is the first person to speak about him this explicitly and comprehensively. When we get to the New Testament and the church has been established, the earliest Christians had heard about the Antichrist. They all knew about him because John writes in 1 John chapter 2, little children, you've heard that the Antichrist is coming. So where did they hear that? Well, Obviously, somebody in the early church had been teaching the book of Daniel. 
You've heard that the Antichrist is coming. They heard that because people were teaching Daniel in their churches. Certainly Paul described it. Certainly Jesus spoke about this Antichrist, but it was all based upon what they knew from the book of Daniel chapter 7. Different names all speaking about the same person, this final ruler who's going to try to establish his kingship and his kingdom before Jesus comes back to establish the final kingdom. Now you'll notice in verse 8, in verse 11, in verse 20, in verse 21, that this person is described in a vision form as a little horn that comes up out of something. A horn signifies a strong ruler, one who powerfully dominates. Anyway. The horn signifies a strong ruler who powerfully dominates. You see, an animal's horn was the animal's strength, and it was used as a weapon. It was used as a symbol of power and of might and domination. But the little horn has big plans, and his plans are world domination. He will increase in strength because he will need to subdue the three other kings that are mentioned along with him. Now, how is he going to do that? He will powerfully dominate because he's a political genius. In verse 8, it says, I considered the horns, and behold, there came up from among them another little horn, before which there were three, the first horns plucked up by the roots. Now, the language here sounds violent, like you're plucking something up, but in the original text, it's not so violent. It expresses rather a pushing out as the other three are growing. As one comes up, this one comes up, it just gradually squeezes its way through through until it becomes the most prominent. It actually describes a gradual replacement as a new pushes out the old and the old gradually fades away. It's not a catastrophe, it's just progressive. So then what does that mean? That means to me that somehow this individual is so subtle in his political geniusness that without an upheaval, without a revolution, he just subtly moves up and takes over through political strategy. Revelation chapter 6, for example, says that, that, that he comes riding on a horse and a bow with a bow to conquer. As I read Revelation chapter 6, it amazed me, it just amazed me that he has a bow, but he doesn't have any arrows. Apparently, he can do more with a threat than he needs to with war. In his subtlety and political geniusness, he can pull this off without causing even war. Look, for example, at Daniel eleven twenty one. it says, In his estate, talking about the Antichrist, shall stand up a vile person to whom they shall give the honor of the kingdom, but he shall come in peaceably and obtain the kingdom by flattery. That's what politicians do. It's the art of flattery. So when you, when you look to think of one who would be the Antichrist, he will be a political mastermind. He's even able to make peace in the Middle East, according to Daniel chapter 9, which we'll see later. He makes a covenant with the people of God, with Israel. Perhaps there's going to be some protection by the European community of Israel and Israel's resources, protecting them against invasions from, from all different kinds of people in the end. We don't know, but we know that this guy is going to somehow figure it out. But in verse 20, the Bible says that his appearance is greater than his fellows. That word means chief or ruler. He's going to be stronger. He'll have to be stronger to subdue them and to dominate them. And he's going to do that with political genius. But then in verse 20, it says that he has eyes. I don't know if you saw that. And no pun intended. It says, I saw a little horn come up and he had eyes. These little blinking eyes. Eyes in the Bible and prophecy signify insight and intelligence. 
And so the Antichrist is not only going to be a political genius, but he's going to be incredibly smart, clever, shrewd. He's going to have incredible mental acumen, mental ability to give advice and to solve problems. He's going to be so enamoring, so overwhelmingly attractive to people because of what he says that in Revelation 13, the Bible says they wondered after the beast and said, who is like the beast? You want a modern day paraphrase? Man, this guy is amazing. Again, eyes refer to insight. They, they refer to intelligence, mental ability. He's going to be clever and shrewd, knowledgeable. He's going to give advice. He's going to be able to solve world problems. Somebody, somebody like that today, if we just had somebody today to solve the world's problems, right? That's what people are looking for. And this guy's just going to worm his way in. And there are going to be multiple problems. So imagine a man who arrives on the scene who just claims he can solve all the world's problems and is just able to pull it off. So some of this little horn, this coming ruler is going to be attached to the ancient Roman Empire that's fragmented, that broke up, but then the 10 fragments, they reemerge in some way, and the Antichrist will powerfully dominate the world. Now, if you know your history, you know that the Roman Empire, Rome itself, was attacked by a whole bunch of different hordes of barbarian tribes, including the Franks, the Huns, the Saxons, the Vandals, and the Visigoths. And that the city of Rome was sacked eventually in 476 AD by the Visigoths. But that's not the whole Roman Empire. The Roman Empire in, in AD 395, about 80 years before, had split into two legs, as we saw in Daniel chapter 2. One in the west and one in the east. The west was Rome, the east was Constantinople, or modern day Istanbul. And I need to tell you that the Muslims... And that faith is going to be made significantly predominant in the end times. You just got to know it's coming. The Eastern Roman Empire continued for yet another thousand years. It was different from all the other world governing empires. What this final form is, I don't know, but, and I'm not prepared to tell you, but I can just tell you this, that the Antichrist is going to come and he's going he's to just powerfully get after this thing. But then the Antichrist will pridefully dictate He'll pridefully dictate in verse 8, 11, and 20, in verse 25, it says this little horn came up not only with eyes but with a mouth. This beast can speak. This ruler, I believe, will have incredible oratory abilities. He's going to be articulate. Revelation 13, which is going to be your parallel to this passage, describes the beast and said he was given a mouth for speaking great things. He's going to be communicate so effectively that he will bring peace to the Middle East. Now just imagine that. Nobody's been able to do that. He's going to be able to finally figure that out. In Revelation chapter 6, you don't have to turn there, the Antichrist is described as the rider on a white horse. He's the first of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And we're told in that chapter, I saw a white horse and a rider on that horse who went out conquering and to conquer. Now, that's not Jesus Christ. That's the Antichrist. Jesus Christ is a rider on the white horse in Revelation 19. The writer in chapter 6, we know it's not Jesus because he brings with him death, destruction, disease, desperation, and bloody carnage upon the earth. You go, yeah, but he's on a white horse. Well, remember those old westerns? You remember that bad guys were on black horses and wore black hats. The good guys were on white horses with white hats. So what if you were really a bad guy, but you wanted to fool everybody, and you came with a white hat on a white horse? The Antichrist will be the ultimate wolf in sheep's clothing. 
And he will be so confident because he says he spoke pompous words, inflated words. Low self-esteem won't be his problem. He will exude self-confidence. I remember reading about a guy from Texas who one time went to Niagara Falls. And y'all know everything's bigger and better here in Texas, right? So, so the Texan went and saw Niagara Falls, and, and the little guy that was taking him around said, hey, you see how beautiful and magnificent these falls are? The guy said to the Texan, he says, you guys got anything this big in Texas? And the Texan said, nope, but we got a plumber that can fix that leak. <laughs> you see, the Antichrist is going to come and fix big problems. And he's going to fix all the bad stuff that's happened in the world, all the leaks in the world. And he's going to be able to do that with his persuasive speech. He will have the oratorical skill of John Kennedy, the inspirational power of Winston Churchill, the determination of Joseph Stalin, the vision of a Karl Marx, the respectability of, of Gandhi, the military prowess of a Douglas MacArthur, and the charm of Will Rogers, but yet the genius of King Solomon, one man said. Imagine having all that wrapped up into one person, charming, disarming, clever, problem solver. He's going to be dangerous because his enticing speech, at some point in his career, he's going to turn and he's going to speak blasphemous speech. Look at verse 25. It says, he shall speak pompous words or, or words that are high and lofty against the most high. He's going to have a really big mouth and he's going to be able to smooth and persuade a lot of people, and then he's going to turn on the very people that he's made the promises to. Revelation 13 says, he opened his mouth and blasphemed against God to blaspheme his name, tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. That's going to happen at the middle of a tribulation period. The tribulation period is going to last for seven years. But the last half of the seven years, the last three and a half years, is called the great tribulation. And what marks the difference between the first and the second half is an event called the abomination of desolation. Jesus speaks about it. Daniel speaks about it. But when the Antichrist, the world ruler, the, the, the little big horn, the big mouth announces to the world, he's going to finally say, I want you to know that I am the one that you should worship. I am the Lord your God. And Paul and 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 says that he will oppose and exalt himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing that he really is God. He's going to be able to smooth Arab and Jew and bring peace. And he's going to allow the Jews to have their temple, but then eventually he's going to turn and sit in that temple and claim to be Jesus himself. Now, Who does that sound like, friends? Don't be deceived. It's Satan. Don't ever be deceived. The devil is the one who said, I will be like the most high. And he wants to be worshipped. The Antichrist will also painfully destroy. We've got to go quick. He's going to painfully destroy. Verse 21 of our text says something. It says, I kept looking and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them. That's what he's using his horn for, is, is power and strength to make war against the saints. Look at the 25th verse, if you'll see it. It says, he will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the highest one. He will intend to make alterations in time and law that will be given his hand to times, times, and half a time. This is interesting here, because once he succeeds in dominating the world, then the Holocaust begins. In the last half of the seven-year period, it will be satanic destruction on the earth, and that's the only way to describe it. 
Jesus said that that time will be far worse than any other period in human history. The word for, for in verse 25 that speaks, that he says he's going to wear out the saints, is talking about what happens to a garment that's just wore over and over and over and over and over and over again that finally just gets so wore down, you have to throw it away. The Antichrist is going to continually harass and wear down the people of God through things like physical harassment, legal injustice, seizure of property, physical punishment, failure to comply with these new laws. Remember, the Antichrist is going to cause everyone to take some kind of a mark on their hand or on their forehead. And if they don't, they'll seem as revolutionary or reactionary. And according to Scripture in Revelation 13, they're going to be killed. So whatever peace he comes with will end when he makes terrible war against God's people. Again, Revelation 13, chapter 13, verse 7 and 8 says, The beast was allowed to wage war against God's holy people and to overcome them. He was given ability to rule over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all the people who belong to this world worshiped the beast. He will be a painful oppressor who's going to painfully destroy. Now, you might be wondering, what exactly will he do that will be so painful to God's people? He's going to kill two-thirds of all Jews. You read Zechariah chapter 13, you'll see it. He's going to conquer the city of Jerusalem by killing most everybody. Zechariah chapter 14. He will deceive the world and go on a rampage to kill any believer he can find. You read that in Revelation chapter 13. But you see, what's interesting is, just like with Hitler, I don't believe he's going to be a secularist. I think he's going to be probably the most religious person anybody has ever seen. Because the Bible says that along with him, he has a false prophet. And the false prophet will be his mouthpiece. Not only that, but in Revelation 17, it describes a a religious movement known as Mystery Babylon in metaphorical language. It's a religious system which over the Antichrist will be the head. And with all his dominion and religious power, he's going to persecute any who are God's people. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, he said, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my namesake. That's a, a promise that Jesus made about the Antichrist. That promise was fulfilled in an early part by guys like Caesar and Diocletian and Domination who who killed people of God and destroyed Bibles and destroyed churches, but there's coming another fulfillment of it, and it's going to happen in greater ways. But I'm going to tell you that he's going to be put to an end. You're going, yeah, yeah, it says time, times and a half, but it, it doesn't say three and a half years, so where are you getting that? We'll cover that much later. You just need to know at the end of this seven-year deal, he's at, in the middle of it, he's going to break this, and then something crazy is going to happen. And I don't mean to say this in a way that you may think that I am cussing, but literally what happens at the end of this three-and-a-half-year period is that all hell breaks loose on the earth. Satan, all that is in hell is, is released And all demonic forces are just let go. And this will be blood like you have never seen before. And so it sounds so bad, doesn't it? But you see, God ruins those who are opposed, right? So lastly, the Antichrist will be permanently defeated. Verses 9 and 11 say it this way. I just just want you to see it there. 
says, I kept looking, and two the thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat, and his vesture was like snow, the hair of his head pure wool, his throne was ablaze with flames, its wheels of burning fire, and a river was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands of thousands were attending him. Myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, the books were open. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words with the horn speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. <laughs> so Mr. Big Mouth has a little time and then he'll have eventually his mouth shut for good. And this is the judgment. Here's a picture of God the Father sitting on the throne of judgment. And the thrones were seated and put in place. And the Ancient of Days was seated. And he's seen in purity and wisdom and authority. He has a white robe and white hair. And he's on this throne. And by the same, by, by the same token, we have a description of this in Revelation chapter 1 of Jesus with the same kind of description. But if you remember, Jesus said the Father has committed all judgment to the Son. It's interesting here that the word for thrones is plural, and the thrones were set up. It probably speaks about the Father and the Son united in judgment against the Antichrist. We're going to cover that in a couple of weeks. But verse 27, if you look over there, it says this. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and the dominions will serve and obey him. And that's the end of the world as we know it. Jesus brings in his kingdom. The first part is a millennial thousand-year reign of a remade earth. And you and I will be on this earth remade, revitalized, a perfect environment for a thousand years. And after that, an eternal new kingdom, a new heaven, and a new earth. And we'll enter into an eternal state forever and ever. But guess who's not going to be there? Anyone. Not just the Antichrist who was opposed to Jesus and his kingdom. You see, we sing a song at Christmas time that we've kind of got out of place. You see, we sing this song that Isaac Watts wrote back in 1719, and we've misplaced it. It's not a Christmas song, but we sing it at Christmas. It goes like this, joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. You, you know, when Isaac Watts wrote that, he wasn't talking about Christ's first coming. He was talking about Christ's second coming. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. I think I might just ask the Lord if we can sing that song at that moment when he comes. Maybe you'll join me. Then verse 28, it says something incredible. It says, at this point, the revelation ended. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming, and my face grew pale, but I kept the matter to myself. In other words, here's what, here's what Daniel just did. Y'all remember Porky Pig? <laughs> uh, yada, 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 that, that, that's all, folks, right? You know, he... He, that's basically what it said in Hebrew as I, as I read it. Uh, no, but that's basically what he says. He says, and that's all, folks. The world had a beginning, and the world's going to have an end, and every kingdom that rises falls. Every single nation that comes has a shelf life. If there's a theme of Daniel that's overriding, and that's this, all the kingdoms of men will come and they will go, and this world will end. But Jesus said, whoever believes in me will never die. So let, let's stay today, let's just say, let's just pretend that 
today was the end of the world. How do you think the newspapers and magazines would report that? Somebody suggested that the US today, USA Today would simply say, we're dead. The Wall Street Journal would say, the Dow Jones plummets as the world ends. Microsoft Systems Journal would say, Apple loses market share finally. Sports Illustrated would put on the cover of their magazine, Game Over. The Rolling Stone magazine would say, The Grateful Dead Reunion Tour. Discover Magazine would say, How will the extinction of all life as we know it affect the way in which we view the cosmos? TV Guide would say, Death and Damnation, Nielsen Rating Soar. The Ladies Home Journal would say, Lose 10 pounds by Judgment Day with our new Armageddon diet. Siri or Alexa would simply say, I'm sorry, but I am not available. You see, verse 10 says something interesting. It says the court was seated and the books were open. See, that scares me. Because the one who knows and sees everything is going to open his books. You know God keeps books, right? You know what God is looking for when he opens his books? God's looking and he sees your name and he kind of gets to your name and he, oh, oh wait a minute, it's, it's right here. And I think he's looking to see this word written over the page or pages of your life. And I think he's looking for this word canceled. I think he's looking for canceled by the blood of Christ. See, I hope, I hope it's there for you. I hope that your, your name is written in another book called the Lamb's Book of Life. And see, the thing about this book over here is that your name can have the words canceled by the blood of Jesus, and when it is, it's transferred to another book that's the Lamb's Book of Life, and it can never be canceled. The transactions or transgressions canceled by the blood of Christ cannot ever be changed because God himself is the one who cancels it. You know, as our team begins to make their way up here, I, I want you to know this today, that Jesus said, you're either for me or you're against me. There's some people in this room today That you would say honestly, I'm not against Jesus. I'm not against God. I mean, I come to your church. I'm not really like against Jesus, but, but I'm not going to say that I'm totally for him. And you see, Jesus said, well, then sorry. Your number's going to come up. And if that's your belief, I'm just telling you that you're against me. Because if you're not for me, you're against me. 
So Jesus is the one that puts the line in the sand and says, just be for me. Because if you're not, then you're really my enemy. And Jesus, I think, would say to you with all the love in his heart, I destroy my enemies, but I don't want to destroy you. I think that God looks upon mankind and says, I have to be true and just, and I have to bring judgment. I have to. Because you see, if, if somebody came and, and shot three or four of my children and we went to court and the judge just kind of let the guy off, what kind of judge would you think he is? There's been a lot of wrong done. God just can't let people off. He's, he's holy and he has to judge. And I'm telling you, friends, you think the Antichrist is going to do some stuff. You have not seen when the Lord comes what he's going to do. And I don't want you in on that. I want your stuff to be canceled. So I wonder if you'd just rise to your feet with me as we close this message. See, if you have never said, Jesus, I want to be all for you, today is a great day that you can do that. This king will gladly allow you to come to him and ask for his forgiveness, and he will mercifully give it to you. He will speak forgiveness over you, and he will write canceled on all your sin, and he will write your name in the Lamb's book of life where you will live and be with him forever. And you will have the Holy Spirit come inside of your life and make you new and make you alive because now you are dead in your sin. So if that's you this morning, if you want to give your heart to Jesus, I beg you just to say these words in your heart to the King of Kings. Jesus, I come this morning realizing that I have sinned against you. And I plead your blood over my sin. I believe that you died to pay for my sin. That you were buried and raised to give me life. Jesus, save me from my sin. And come into my life and be my Lord. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for giving me place in heaven. In Jesus' name.